Well, we come to God's word as we're working systematically uh, in a series, working through this whole book of the Bible that keeps us from cherry picking our favorite parts. And, and this chapter is, is a sad chapter in the life of David, who would be king. David, a man after God's own heart, we see the heart of David falter. And it's a difficult chapter. So let me pray before I read God's word. Heavenly Father, we do always want your word to shape our lives. We want your word to be the anvil upon which our faults and our uh, misshapen parts are straightened out. We want your word to be a light to our feet and to our path. May your word be a mirror for each one listening now that we might examine our own hearts, that we might not falter, that our faith might be strengthened. Oh, Father, teach us and bless us through the preaching of your holy word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It's a shorter chapter than we've seen before, and I'm actually going to roll over a couple of verses into chapter 28. And I'll just remind you now that the, the story is interrupted in chapter 28, and the conclusion of this story comes in chapter 29, but we're not going to try to do all of that. 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. <clears throat> then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, to the son of Maach, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made rains, raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, David has done, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. 
And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall uh, know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. The sermon title is When the Godly Falter. And we don't usually think of that term falter. I don't know if boys and girls have heard that term. You know, you think of somebody maybe unsteady on their feet. Or perhaps we most hear the word falter in our day in sports headlines. Uh, You'll probably know which sport I follow up by which headline I've selected as a sample. For instance, in golf. Uh, Back in 2017, Tiger Woods was making a push for a comeback. And pretty soon he'd win one more Masters. But back in 27, uh, kind of a a B-level player had passed him up. And the headline back then was Charlie Hoffman, if you know Charlie Hoffman, regular guy. Charlie Hoffman builds a five-shot lead as Tiger Woods falters at the Hero World Challenge. Tiger Woods falters? And not a top-ranked player, but an average player is passing him by. What's going on? When someone falters, the the word falter means to lose strength or momentum. And we might in our thinking add the word stability. Something's different, something's not normal. The, The strength is gone, the momentum, the course is not being kept. Something is changing. And it usually has the connotation of danger. And what happens faltering is often falling and damage. It was interesting as I was prepping to look at the topic, uh, uh, one web page said that uh, uh, comic book heroes uh, never falter. And I'm thinking, the person who wrote that web page doesn't know anything about comic book heroes. Almost every comic book hero has a moment where they falter. Even Superman has his kryptonite, right? Well, how about a Bible example of faltering? Perhaps one of the best known from the New Testament, even boys and girls, you would know this one. When Jesus came to his disciples and he was walking on the water and his disciples were in the boat. And Jesus is walking on top of the water. That's amazing. That's a supernatural miracle. And Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. This is in Matthew 14. And he said, so uh, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began sinking. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And I'm sure they worshipped him not only for his power to walk on the water, but for his grace that would grip sinking Peter. 
We often overlook that dimension of it. Peter, the the lead disciple, this is before Paul's on the scene, Peter's faltering. It can happen to saints. The biblical writers, says one source, are not in the business of sugarcoating even their most laudable human characters. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. Uh, You can probably uh, go through a list of all the heroes and name people of the Bible and Almost all of them were told of some point of faltering. Moses faltered. David faltered. Peter faltered. Well, let me ask, have you faltered? I know the story of some of you, some of you I've known for decades. And you've known me. It is possible for a strong and mature Christian to falter. And perhaps you've experienced that. If you haven't, you don't have to falter. It is common. It was the experience in Micah's day. The whole city had faltered. But as Paul writes to the Corinthians, When we read the Bible, and especially when we read the case of a godly man faltering, remember what Paul said, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, this is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12, it's a verse we should underline. If you think, oh no, I'm good pastor, things are going well, take heed lest you fall. Things were going great for David. He had just shown flashes of great spiritual leadership in the very previous chapter, just verses before this. And now he's faltering. It can happen to David, a man after God's own heart. It can happen to you. Today is a take heed day. This moment is a take heed moment. So let's look at the example. And let's learn. Let's do the work of listening And let's listen with the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's make application to ourselves. I've identified in our chapter three reasons a believer might falter, looking at David's experience. And so we'll present these reasons, and that will help us unfold the action of the text, starting with the first verse. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. David's faltering. And and we know that it's a faltering situation because he ends up in a country far from home, serving a pagan king, lying to the king, raiding villagers, not his own people's villages, enemies of Israel, raiding and killing and living life uh, where he really shouldn't be living. Why does he falter? He says so in verse 1. He's afraid of Saul. For fear of men, a believer may falter. 
In David's case, it was this long-standing fear of Saul. But wait, Saul had just said, bless you, son of uh, my son David. You'll do many things. You'll succeed. I'm not going to chase you anymore. But Saul's lying. Or Saul's deceiving himself because he gets back on the warpath. He is chasing David even as this new chapter begins. And it had been going on for years. And Saul had an army of thousands. And David had been around the block. He'd heard this guy repent and promise so many times. And now he's back on the run. And David is afraid of Saul. That's part of the picture, isn't it? I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. That's not the confident expression of faith in the Lord. That's fear of Saul. And you know what? In the ESV, it uses the word perish. I didn't check too many other translations, but that word is a significant word. This is where it helps to know Hebrew, or at least read a commentary that knows Hebrew. Because here, when David says, I will perish, he's using the exact same term he used in the previous chapter when David was preaching, when David was explaining and discipling his helper. Let's take a look. Previous chapter, verse 10. 1 Samuel 26, verse 10. Remember, David uh, had the audacity to just go into the, the, the camp of Saul and sneak in as the Lord had kind of put everyone to sleep. And he sneaks in there and his helper, um, uh, Abishai, is there, his nephew. And they said, okay, should we kill him? And remember, David said, uh, starting in verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. And David said that as one who was also the Lord's anointed. And yet he, in the next chapter, forgets that he's anointed and God's hand of protection is on him. But this is what he said in verse 10. He said to Abishai, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. That word for perish there is the Old Testament word for being swept away. You you know it in the movies when somebody falls off a cliff, you know they're not going to survive. Or when they're swept out to ocean, they're not going to survive. They're dead. They're perished. They're swept away is the literal meaning of that perish. Swept out of life. Same word now as the new chapter begins and David's thinking of himself. Not that the Lord can take care of Saul and he can do it by this mean, he can do it by that mean. Who knows how he can do it, but he can do it. That's the voice of faith. And here David has the voice of fear. He fears Saul and says, I'm going to get swept away. I'm going to be lost. I'm going to perish. The fear of men can lead to you faltering. We've been in 1 Samuel for a little while. Back in chapter 12, the other main character, Samuel, was giving his farewell speech. 1 Samuel 12. And in the midst of that farewell speech, it's a wonderful one. If you haven't been with us for all these expositions, it's something you should take note of, especially these two verses. As Samuel knew not only what the people needed to hear, but also what David would need to hear. Samuel says in chapter 12, beginning in verse 24, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be 
swept away both you and your king. There they translated it very literally, swept away. Samuel was, was preaching to the people and he says, hang in there, have faith in God. And he uses the stronger expression for faith in God. Fear the Lord, acknowledge who he is, his power, and live in a right relationship before him. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. That's the prophet's call to God's people. And David's fearing someone else. And so David is not serving the Lord with all his heart. And he may very well now be swept away, you would think. Do you fear other men? Do you fear other people? And this is not the place to insert a mother-in-law joke. It's never been my experience that that I have anything to fear from my sweet mother-in-law. She's been wonderful. And they just celebrated their anniversary, um, 60 years. But do you fear a boss? Is there a relative that causes your life to be miserable? And so you change your behavior because of them. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's that bully in your social group. It's a nice social group, but every once in a while that bully looks in your direction and you kind of falter. You kind of lower your head when the bully's picking on you or somebody else. You You don't have your strength or momentum. You falter because you fear men. You fear another human being. It's very common. Jesus battled this fear, this ungodly fear throughout his ministry. Those guys in the boat, they were often crying. Lord, the storm, don't you care? We're going to perish. Jesus says, why are you afraid? There needs to be a fear of God that transcends a fear of things on earth. It's connected to your faith. So to fear man is a failure of your faith. And it's more common than you think. You don't have to have that, oh, I'm I'm scared, there's a snake. You know, that kind of uh, belligerent fear. But if you change your behavior, if you falter because of another person... It's a fear of men. You need to be able to say, I don't know how to deal with that person. It's unpleasant, but I'm not afraid. I'm going to do what God calls me to do. I'm going to be who God calls me to be. I don't have all the answers. I may have some pain. I may lose opportunities, benefits, or possessions because of that person. But I will be faithful to my God. Think on it. Fear of men. There's a second reason that uh, David here uh, falters, and it's common to believers. Uh, The practical needs of life loom large, and you are pressured by practical needs in providing, let's say, for your family. If your family's in need, if if you perceive uh, a, a basic necessity has to be provided, the material things that can drive you to falter. What, what's going on here? Let me explain. Here in 1 Samuel 27, we read on uh, in the early verses as it explains what David is doing. Verse 2, David arose and went over. He and the 600 men who were with him. And so they go to the Philistines, the neighboring country. Verse 3, 
David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, and notice what the narrator also tells us, every man with his household, including David, and David with his two wives. And David asks for a place, where can we settle, where can we live, even though we're in this foreign land? And David has to provide for his family. The other men have to provide for their families. They were weary of being in the wilderness. They were weary of living in caves. It gets old fast. Caves are dank and damp. They're not as pleasant as you might imagine. And it had been years. Scraping out a living in the wilderness. Although many others would provide for them along the way. Weariness and the desire for material provision caused David's faith and obedience to God to falter. Perhaps you remember what was read in worship earlier. We're just reading through the Gospel of Mark earlier, and chapter 4 was read, and Jesus gave out the parable of the soils, did he not? The parable of the soils. And in the midst of that parable, Jesus explained... And mentions the cares of the world, these material pressures. The parable compares sowing of seed, throwing it in the four different places it lands to four different ways we receive the word of God. There's the path that gets trampled, uh, the, the rocks don't let the root go down, uh, and the birds pull it away. Or there's this, others are, are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Jesus, he had a great parable and it's in Matthew's gospel as well. God's word has different receptions depending on the soil of the heart of people. And he describes there's one category of person who is constantly anxious about necessities. Anxious about the cares of the world. What I'm going to eat, where I'm going to live, what I'm going to wear. Will people like me? Does this color look good on me? Or more seriously, how am I going to feed my children? How am I going to keep my job? How am I going to make money? And it also says, very pronounced, that it's not just the cares of the world, but the deceitfulness of riches. Oh, if I was rich, I wouldn't have so much trouble. If I was rich, I'd be a little happier. The Bible calls that the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. That's a discontent. That's a materialistic discontent. And what does that do? When you have a focus on the cares of the world, it can lead you to falter in the more important obedience to God. And we can look back and maybe you faltered in this way. Yeah, I took that one job because the, the paycheck was so big, but I didn't feel comfortable doing that kind of work. Or I'm going to pursue that apartment or that house because it's closer to what I want. 
Yeah, it might be more than I can afford right now. But you see, there are things that can come in, and, and they're not evil things. They're just choices. But many times they can become a, a snare that could cause you to falter. It's not money that's evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And when you start eclipsing God, when God drifts out of your view and you think only of yourself and how you're going to provide and you focus on the needs of your family, you can falter. The text here in in 1 Samuel 27 showing what David's trying to do you know, there was one commentator I studied, and he said, David's really just trying to do all the right things. He doesn't want one of his men to accidentally kill Saul, so he says, I'll just step away for a while. And the commentator puts their own spin on it and says, I'm going to take them down to Gath so I can find them uh, a better grocery store, because there isn't much in the wilderness. So I'm going to provide for all the fail. This commentator's bending over backwards to make David look good in everything he does. But that's not the flavor of the text. And that's not what God's word really teaches. As Dale Ralph Davis says, the text is sympathetic to David's difficulties, yet it presents him as in the wrong. He is causing himself to lie and murder to keep his plans secret. These are deeds done under the cloak of obscurity. Nothing to be proud of here, my friends. This plan for living amongst the Philistines leads to bloodshed. But there's a third reason. I think this is the biggest reason that believers might falter. And it's clearly here. But maybe you didn't see it. It is explicitly a failure of faith. And the first key, when you're reading this, and when you get over your shock, oh no, what's David doing? What, what happened? Did I miss a chapter? Do I have a translation? David was just heroic and godly in his leadership, and now he's scrounging. Verse 1. Verse 1 will give you the clue that you need, and oh, how we need to be more careful readers, especially when a term is used that's part of the theme of the whole book. The theme of our series of sermons is looking on the heart. Let's look at verse 1. Then David said in his heart. This is a heart problem. This is a problem of David's faith. And here, when the heart grows weak, he falters. When the heart grows weak, he begins to fear Saul rather than trusting God's word about Saul. He begins to say, oh, how am I going to provide when he forgets that God provides and can set a banquet in the wilderness? When there is a failure of faith, you will falter. Verse 1 is very interesting. It says literally here, David said to his heart. Maybe, maybe the NASB, which is probably the most literal translation, says it that way. He, he's, he's saying this inside him. The essence of faith is that we hear and believe God's word. We cling 
to the gospel. We cling to the words of God, right? That's what faith does. We, we take God at his word. Our God is good and gracious. He's promised me a home in heaven. He said he will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm clinging to that. I'm thinking of those verses. And when I stop thinking and when I talk to my heart and my face starts speaking of different things, when I dwell on how I might perish by the hand of Saul... And that's at the center of my heart. Sure, faith is going to fail. That's why the Bible exhorts us to take this word and and have it written on our hearts. As young Joshua took over the leadership from Moses. Do you know Joshua chapter 1? Great reading today. Especially if you're a young person and entering a new phase of life. Read Joshua 1. And when you get down to Joshua 1 verses 8 and 9. Be strong and courageous. Do not let this word of the Lord depart from out of your mouth. What do you mean by mouth? Well, you're going to be speaking it to yourself. You're going to be thinking of it. You're going to be chewing on it and cogitating and pondering and all those processes. Do not let this book depart from out of your mouth, but meditate it. Be careful to meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. That's a paraphrase of Joshua 1, 8, 9. And David should have known about that. But his faith fails. When you got the wrong thing in your heart, your desires are far from godly. If you don't have God in your heart, your desires, your wants, your fears will mislead you. Do you remember earlier in chapter 14 the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer? Jonathan's all gung-ho. Jonathan's a godly man, had a good influence on David. And Jonathan is saying, hey, let's go attack this group and God can deliver by many or by few. Do you remember what the armor bearer said in response? We don't know his name, but he said this, chapter 14, verse 7. His armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. It's interesting. The words of Jonathan, God is able to save by many or by few. Our God is with us. His words were heard by the the armor bearer, and I, I kind of think of him as the comic sidekick, but he's an armor bearer and he's probably a capable warrior. He takes in those words and he says, I am with you, heart and soul. My friends, your failure of faith, your weak spiritual heart will be like a domino effect on those around you. Imagine a couple and they stop going to church. And one partner's pretty happy with that. The other one wants to go, but the other partner says, well, you know, things are okay. We can watch something on Zoom. We can... And pretty soon one whose heart is not desiring the things of God as he should begins to influence the other. And pretty soon neither one goes to church. Pretty soon, who knows what else. What do you say to your heart? A failure of faith. I can't help but think of the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Let me pause. We're going to get to some other lessons, but right here I just want to bring in Philippians 3. So find your New Testament, find Philippians, flip to Philippians chapter 3. Because there's a word in the midst of his exhortation that I think you overlook. 
Everybody knows Philippians is a call to joy, even as Paul wrote it from prison. In Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12, we read this. Paul's exhortation. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul has some doctrine in view. He's got an act of Jesus in his mind. He's thinking of God and he has faith in God. And he continues, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul doesn't want your faith to falter. So what does he point to? He points to your thinking. Do you see it here? Let's go over it. Philippians 3 in verse Uh, 13, Paul tells us what he's thinking. He says, I do not consider it. I know I'm not a work that's finished. I'm taking heed lest I fall. I don't want to drift away. I don't want to do a David chapter 27 version. I know my needs. I know my weakness. I know my vulnerability. But I also know that Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he's considering He's pondering. He's thinking. This isn't just a pat on the back, warm hug, feel good little sound bite. Paul is telling us what he's thinking. And in verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal. And in verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Thinking. Believing the word of God. Speaking it to yourself. Let us hold true to what we have attained. That's Paul in the New Testament. Well, let's uh, summarize. And notice we only have two major headings today. We wanted to diagnose the faltering. And now I want to give you some antidotes, some helps uh, to prevent faltering. Okay, we're going to look at these quickly in in light of what David's doing back in chapter 27. Lessons to fortify your faith. And we're going to start with thinking. Okay, the first thing we need to do is guard your thoughts. You can write down on the outline, guard your thinking, guard your thoughts. It, It really, it's a good place to start. Be careful what you say to your soul. Now, David had said to his heart, we're not talking about people who talk out loud to themselves. That could be a sign of mental illness. When you talk to yourself when nobody else is around and you have discussions with yourself, that's not what the Bible is portraying. It is rather saying, what do you think about? What do you ruminate on? What do you imagine? You look out the window and you think of what's coming up. What will this season of life hold? What did that email mean? What did that phone call mean? How am I going to respond? You're thinking. And as your pastor, as a preacher of the word of God, I would say guard your thoughts. Guard your thoughts. Perhaps you remember a a parable of Jesus in Luke 12. I call it the parable of the bigger barns. There was a farmer. He had such a bounty. Uh, uh, He actually started talking to himself about what he wanted to do. This is what we read in Luke. 
He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, and it actually has this in quotes in the parable, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He wasn't guarding his thoughts. He was focused on the cares of this world. Not, you know, some might say, oh, he's trying to be a good steward. Not exactly, because he's rebuked in the parable. It continues, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Be careful what you say to your soul. To live the Christian life is to remind yourself, to remember the promises of God, to meditate upon them day and night. You know, Psalm 1, which is an introduction to the whole Psalter. Psalm 1, which is kind of a summary of the the whole Christian life. Psalm 1, so strategic, talks about the godly man, what he doesn't do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what else does he do? His delight is, I'm trying to remember, what else does he do? He meditates on it day and night. And some of you have learned what Psalm 1 says. And then you're fruitful in season and out of season. Guard your thoughts. That's the first of five. Number two, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Here's a scripture for this. Proverbs 4.23. If you don't know it yet by memory, you need to know this one. Guard your thoughts and guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23, I think it's in the NIV, uses the exact language. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. ESV changes it a little bit. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I memorized it back in seminary. One of the most helpful talks I think I heard as a seminary student. We visited the the headquarters of our denomination in Arlington Heights, Illinois, and one of the uh, bureaucrats there, I didn't know his exact title, as the office, took time to share the word. I didn't see it coming, and he laid out Proverbs 4.23. And I've clung to that. You don't know my heart, God does, and he planted that word in my heart early on. My life verse is connected to my heart. Psalm 23, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I cling to the word of God. I want to guard my heart, and I guard it with scripture. It takes intentionality to guard it. I don't know about you men, but every night as I get ready for bed, I'm usually the last one in bed. I walk around the house. I make sure the windows are locked. The doors are locked. The lights are off to save power. The dog's where the dog should be. Why? I love my family. The world we live in, you lock the doors. If I'm tired and I get to bed and I think, oh, what about the sliding door in the kitchen? I get up put on my slippers, and go check the sliding door in the kitchen. I guard my house. I guard my family. Believer, guard your heart. Be careful what gets in there, what has access to your heart. 
when you're watching TV, when you're watching social media, when you see someone go by in a car that's nicer than yours, or when you hear someone's plans for a vacation are better than yours, guard your heart. It's a wellspring of life. If the heart gets polluted, it'll affect your whole life. We have to move on. Fortify your faith. Guard your thoughts. Guard your heart. Third, guard your steps. Here in 1 Samuel 27, David had no intention of becoming a traitor to his people. And, you know, you can read the text. The fine print doesn't say, and David killed his fellow people. No, he, he raided against others and then lied about it to the king of Gath. He had some bounty and he traded into Gath. And, of course, I'm thinking, okay, so if he goes after the Amalekites and has clothing, clothing and property, they wouldn't look like Jewish clothing. Maybe the king of Gath didn't realize that the things he was being brought were from the Amalekites. He didn't study the treasures. David didn't set out to become a traitor, but he's not walking where he should be. Here's the scripture for this point, Proverbs 14.12. I bet somebody knows 14.12. You've been to Awana, you do any navigator's memory work, Proverbs 14.12 in the ESV. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Yeah, David chapter 27. It seemed right to David. He was thinking and he wasn't necessarily praying or being faithful. He says, I'll go to Gath, I'll hide out there, I'll provide for my family. They won't be in caves anymore. The men will be okay. We'll just hunker down. He didn't guard his steps. It seemed right to David. And the Proverbs tell us, oh, there's a way that seems right to a man. And then there's that comma. And if you know the Proverbs, there's usually something that comes after it. Read the Proverbs. Read a chapter a day. Whenever you get to a month that has 31 days, read Proverbs one chapter a day. Especially if you're a dad. Or mom. There is a way that seems right to a man. I would just remind you what we read earlier from Corinthians. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. You may have a plan, but the New Testament and the whole of God's word tells us to lay all things before our God. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. Consult the Lord with all your plans. Look for the plans that have his blessing and his direction. Two more steps to fortify your faith and we'll be brief. Get wisdom from above. Get wisdom from above. James 1.5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who freely gives. Do you lack wisdom? Ask of God. And read Proverbs, because God's already spoken. There's a lot there for us to know and study. Finally, Lessons to fortify your faith. You know what's missing in this list. And oh, I, I, I debate. Do you put this one first or last? You want it to have emphasis. Get praying. Get praying. If you want to fortify your faith, get to praying. Remember Jesus? He taught his disciples to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. It's for us to pray. It's a model and it's an actual prayer. Do you remember one of the petitions? Very significant for today. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, don't let me go to these places that will endanger me, where I might falter. 
You know, Jesus said we should pray that way. Pastor, are you saying if I don't pray that way, the Lord might lead me into temptation? Well, the Lord's going to lead you where it's good for you. And if you're walking unawares and without discernment and you walk astray, the Lord has plenty of ways to discipline those whom he loves. So if you learn and you pray, it'll protect you. I'm not saying you're not going to be tempted, but your faith will not falter. How did Peter... The Lord said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But when you've recovered, strengthen your brethren. The Lord knew that Peter would be tested, tried, that he would falter and fall, but that he would be recovered. And Jesus tells Peter in advance why he'll be recovered. Because I've prayed for you. We underestimate prayer all the time. Sometimes we just treat it like the brakes on our car. I'm driving along, and if I need to, I can hit that brake. And if brakes are working well, you can stop pretty fast. My friends, prayer shouldn't just be the brake pedal. It should be the gas pedal. Prayer should be the steering wheel. Prayer should be the GPS. Change your thinking. Fortify your faith. Well, I only had two major headings, but I've got two closing words. So let's take just a minute or so on each. Because I I think we need to have uh, just another approach that gives us more grace and help. Because you may be faltering and the sound of a checklist to fortify your faith, that, that might seem hard. Pastor, I'm not a spiritually mature guy like David. I, uh, I'm going to try not to falter, but David faltered. What chance do I have? Two words. First is grace. God is a God of grace. He makes himself known as grace. Know that God gives grace to the humble, to those who know they need it. Notice that God gives grace to sinners, not to saints per se. Jesus himself knew it. It's not the healthy that need a physician, but the sick. So you're weak. You're worried about faltering. You're like the rest of us. There's grace for us. Remember what we read from Micah 7. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. David's life. Is that a picture of grace? Time And time again. David doesn't deserve it. He doesn't earn it. Neither can you. Grace. It's almost too good to be true. But it's in the Bible. There is grace. Grace greater than all my sins. That verse from Micah 7 was used by uh, the Virginia preacher Samuel Davies back in the 1700s to write a hymn. Uh, Great God of Wonders. All thy ways. It's not in our hymnal. It's one of my favorite hymns, and it's not in our hymnal. And uh, you get to the refrain, and he just cries out like Micah did. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Who has grace so rich and free? Oh, I can't wait to sing that again. But today I'm going to believe it. Our God is a God of grace. Not a God of checklists. The second closing word is abide in Christ. 
Even when we fail, the good news is that Jesus calls us to flee to him. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wants to shepherd us because we're only sheep. Abide in Christ. And you know, we've seen the hero of Samuel fall. David is faltering. We don't follow David. We follow David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who faced all the world's temptations and did not sin, who conquered sin and death, who is victorious. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Abide in him, believe in him, cling to him, and rest in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which gives us examples of God's people and their mistakes that we might learn from them. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for all those proverbs that can show us the way of wisdom, wisdom from above. We thank you, Father, for the cautions of your word. Lord, may we be those who think, who guard our thinking, guard our feelings, guard our steps, May your spirit be with us. May we be in your word daily and on our knees regularly. Father, may we do all that you've directed us to do and find our way good and prosperous. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.